been looking forward to this for a time and it's great to see you all and a few new faces I don't see very often and I haven't been here very often but it's uh, it's a little bit new to me and it feels a little bit high up here but we'll just go with that I reckon been uh, assigned has been announced the subject of resurrection life life is important to us if someone would ask you what do you think about life you could tell them well I'm for it most of us are God designed it that way that we have a, a will to live I had to think of a um, a man in the Bible that wanted to live if you want to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 38 Hezekiah was a king and he received a word from the Lord in verse 1 it says Isaiah 38 verse 1 in those days was Hezekiah sick unto death and Isaiah the prophet, son of Amoz, came unto him and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. Then Hezekiah turned his face toward the wall and prayed unto the Lord and said, Remember now, O Lord, I beseech thee, how I have walked before thee in truth and with a perfect heart, and have done that which is good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept sore. Then came the word of the Lord to, he to Isaiah, saying, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus saith the Lord, the God of David, thy father, I have heard thy prayer, I have seen thy tears, behold, I will add unto thy days fifteen years. And Hezekiah had that desire that he felt like his life wasn't ready to be over yet, according to to the word of the Lord you know I think some of us as we age we we feel like well maybe our life is about over and it's time to to move on to new realms from this earth and we have that desire but Hezekiah apparently I don't know how old he was but he wanted to live <clears throat> and he prayed to God and it, I believe it was a um of fervent prayer. Interestingly enough, the word from the Lord in verse 5 said, The God of David. I am the God of David. If you remember, David also prayed a prayer for the life of his son. He had a word from the Lord, came through Nathan, that said, Well, your son's going to die. The child will surely die. And David had a son through um, Bathsheba that was not a good situation, but he still loved that child. And he prayed for that child. And he wept and he fasted seven days. Now, in that case, the, the child did die, as the Lord had said. And we wonder, well, why did David even concern himself with it if, if it was prophesied and that was the word of the Lord? Why did he concern himself and, and go to that effort to pray for the life of that child? And even his servants and the people in that situation, they... They wondered a little bit the same thing when, when the child did die. David got up and, and he went about his usual work and he just he kind of went back to normal. And they wondered at that because they said, well, you know, if this affects you that bad when he's, when he's still living and then he, he doesn't recover, you know, why were you praying? We might wonder why David was praying, but, you know, David said an interesting thing 
He said, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who can tell whether God will be gracious to me that the child may live? I see that perhaps as a, as a desire that we could have and foster in our own spirit regarding our, not just our physical lives, but our spiritual well-being as, as well. If you look further in, in chapter 38 there in Isaiah, Hezekiah goes on to write about this experience and, and the, the hardship it was to him. Verse 10, he said, I said in the cutting off of my days, I shall go in the gates of the grave. I am deprived of the residue of my years. I said, I shall not see the Lord, even the Lord, in the land of the living. I shall behold man no more with the inhabitants of the world. Almost like a, a lament concerning his, his condition or his, his state of affairs and the things he went through, even though I think this was written afterwards. And in verse 18, he says, For the grave cannot praise thee, death cannot celebrate thee, they that go down into the pit cannot hope for thy truth. Verse 19, the living, the living, he shall praise thee as I do this day. It seems as if Hezekiah is, is uh, calling on God to, to consider the uselessness of death. You know, what good is it going to do if I go to the grave? But if I live, the father to the children shall make known thy truth. In other words, I have the ability to speak thy truth in the land of the living and to show that truth to others. But only if I'm alive. And the Lord was gracious there and, and provided Hezekiah with a few more years in spite of the, the original word that he would die. That tells me the importance of our prayers concerning life and what we are able to function in in this world before God physically and spiritually. It takes prayer. It takes a will to live and a desire to see the goodness of God in the land of the living. I think when we talk about a resurrection life, we our minds go immediately go to Jesus the giver of life, the person of, of uh, Jesus when he rose from the dead, he, he rose from the grave, and he taught us many things concerning life and his, his resurrection. And while I wouldn't necessarily consider this to be a, an Easter sermon this evening, uh, certainly there are aspects of, of Easter that we could consider and events that took place there. The power of Jesus was evident not just in the fact that he rose from the dead, but that he also predicted. He, he said that's what's going to happen on the third day. And so on that resurrection morning, the discovery was made that the stone was rolled away and the, the tombstone that covered that grave was rolled away. Not so much, I don't think, that Jesus could get out, but that others could go in and be witnesses and see that the Lord had risen. I like a, um, the account in Matthew talks about the angel of the Lord came down from heaven and rolled the stone away and sat on it. You know, that's just a, a picture there of making a mockery of death making a mockery of the idea that Jesus could be retained in that grave. He defeated death from the inside out. He didn't do it with a 10-foot pole like we like to talk about, you know, from a distance and things we don't like we handle from a distance. But he went through that experience and... and saw it from top to bottom. And I had to think, you know, there's probably aspects of the work of, of Jesus and that sacrifice 
and that suffering that he went through that we don't fully understand what it was about or how it worked. You know, was it a sacrifice? Was it a substitute? How did this work in the sight of God? How did it satisfy a holy God to where he could begin to impart that goodness into our lives from what happened? But I think the main truth that we need to know and to hold on to is that you know, the truth and the teaching that he died to pay for our sins and the proof that it worked is demonstrated in the fact that he rose from the grave. That's the proof. That's all we need to really count on and bank on in our faith. I think resurrection life, it, it also describes a quality of life that exceeds what our common understanding of, of life is, at least, you know, in a, in a biological sense. Maybe we don't understand completely the, even the biological life on a, in a medical sense, but, you know, it's more than that, even with what God wants to do. When I was offered this assignment, right away, a verse that came to my mind is uh, in Romans 8. I might invite you there to... Uh, Romans 8, verse 11. It says, But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. Notice there's two things that appear twice in here. It's the raising up of Jesus. It mentions that twice. His raising up, and then it also mentions by His Spirit. That's in there twice. You could say, because of his spirit, I believe, that dwelleth in us. Because of that, it enables other things. It's just because. You know, sometimes we use that as the reason for when we tell a child something, you know, we know it's above their head. We just say, just because. It affects many things in our life. There's a song we sing. Jesus, my Savior, let me be more perfectly com conformed to Thee. It talks about self and, and showing forth the fruits of righteousness in that song. Not to yielding to the envenom heart and tongue and, and um, returning evil for evil and that kind of thing. And the last verse says, This will proclaim how bright and fair the precepts of the gospel are. And God himself, the God of love, his own resemblance will approve. So God sees that spirit, that work of that spirit in our lives, that inviting presence of the spirit of God, and he approves of it. He says, that's what I like to see. That looks, that looks like me. That looks like Christ. That's what makes possible all these other works of grace in our life. The love, joy, and peace, the fruits of the Spirit, and the gifts of the Spirit spring out of that abiding presence of Christ. It is the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. So, you know, we could talk about a, a lot of things we could talk about the resurrection. We could talk about God's power. We could talk about life and what that is. I thought we might just look a little bit at Genesis here this morning where life began. You know, all life springs from God. And if you go back to the third day, God did all this creative work. And Genesis... Uh, 11 we come to the third day and God created living things let the earth bring forth grass the herb yielding seed and the fruit tree yielding fruit after its kind whose seed is in itself upon the earth and it was so you could say we're finally seeing signs of life here on the third day and interestingly Jesus rose on the third day 
I spoke this morning to um, the congregation, and um, I, I talked a little bit about the, the miracle of the third day in various places in the Bible. Well, there are signs of life appear on the earth. We see God's creative hand, and then we also see kind of a progression as, as that week goes by, those days go by. Um, day five, he, he created fish and birds. And then day six, he created the land animals. And finally, he created human, man, humankind. And God gave to man a higher level, a distinctive higher form of life than he did the animals. If you look at that in uh, verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image. And if you notice up until then, when God wanted to create something, he said, let the earth do this. Let the earth do that. He spoke to the earth. But when he created man, he looked to himself. He didn't say, let the earth bring forth man. He said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness and let him do all these things, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and, and so on. God gave him a job to do. He said, subdue the land, um, dress it, uh, replenish it. He gave them jobs to do and fulfill in their purpose, in the life that they had in a perfect world, they still had a duty. Made me think, you know, like in the new world, the new heaven and the new earth, there'll probably still be jobs for God's people to do along that line. I don't think it'll be drudgery, but we will have activity, I believe, in the new world order, if you want to call it that. We hear a lot about new world order in a in a bad way these days, but uh, God's going to be the, the author of the, the true and the good and the living new world order that is yet to be. Also in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, we're not done yet. It says, The Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So God created life. God sustains life in spite of the fact that uh, there was a fall. You know, when sin entered creation, it, it was a huge detriment. But you could say it only affected the quality of the life. In other words, Adam and Eve didn't just fall over dead when they sinned like Ananias and Sapphira. They still were alive. And eventually they would die. But, you know, you could say if, if I lived as long as Adam, I would have found the fountain of youth. He lived a long time. But what we see as death in their experience, I think, showed up in, in other ways, in immediate ways. They, they lost a lot of things in that. You could say there was the death began to happen. Um, there was a death to their innocence. There was a death of their confidence. They hid from God. You know, lack of confidence, it, it resulted in shame and, and fear. There was a death to their freedom and their openness. There was a death to their authority, to their joy. Now, they still had some of those qualities in a measure that would come about as they continued to live in this compromised condition. And I think the Lord looked down on that situation and he, he said, you know, we will now drive man from the garden lest he take hold of the tree of life and live forever. And so I'm not sure what that would have meant or how that would have looked. 
Um, apparently, it was something in that, you know, doesn't God want us to live forever? But you say, well, they would have lived forever in their sins, and and apparently God wouldn't, wouldn't have been able to redeem them in that. Whatever it was, it, it didn't meet God's approval. It would have been a shortcut. Yes, God wants to give us eternal life, but um, I believe after the fall of man, it, it so became that Satan obtained uh, a degree of authority that he was able to start bringing about um, evil and different conditions concerning other parts of God's creation. And, you know, that came about because he was successful in causing man who had been given that dominion over the creation. He caused man to fall. And so it was almost like man and Satan now are, are, are <laughs> shared responsibility in taking care of the earth. But, you know, God said, in that day you eat, you shall die. And yet God still had something there that he could work with. Creation was not yet a total loss, as we would understand it. But because of the fall, you could say it, it, life is, has definitely become a struggle um, in so many regards in the things we face. There's a struggle between success and hardship. There's a struggle between um, light and darkness, life and death and you know everything's just kind of a mixture now and all the variables that can come out of that well we hear the expression sometimes that the struggle is real you know and for sure the bible would teach that the way of the transgressor is is hard but the scriptures would also teach us that the way of life is is not without a struggle you know, Paul said, why stand we in jeopardy every hour? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but we do wrestle. There's principalities and powers, rulers of darkness, spiritual wickedness in high places and so on. There's a, uh, an account in Daniel that um, I've considered before. It gives us a picture into that spiritual realm to some extent. As you remember, there was a messenger that, an angelic messenger that was um, given the assignment to speak to the prophet Daniel. Daniel saw many things, dreams, and he had much communication with God. Well, he got a message um, from an angel saying that, um, I meant to get here sooner. But the prince of Persia had detained me. And that was a rare glimpse into the struggle that is in the spiritual realm that exists. And angels working in our behalf may be encumbered sometimes. We don't, we don't know what all takes place there, but I think it's important to, to pray and to seek God continually even if we don't see immediate results in our pursuits. We have an enemy that is there to obstruct and impede our spiritual progress. That's what makes it so hard, and that sometimes takes the joy out of it. But the good news is this. Jesus is the good news. And he said, the thief has come to steal, to kill, to destroy, but I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. He seems to be speaking about two different things there. And maybe that first life, I am come that they may have life, is, pertains to this life more so. Restoring, taking back a, a hope, a purpose, and of course, life more abundantly, that can apply to many things. It may apply to that um, day in the, in the Lord in Christ when we're with Him. Galatians 2, verse 20. 
I'll read part of that verse. And I might jump in the middle of it here. It says, The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God, verse 21. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. The conclusion here could well be that I live by faith, I live by grace. The result is righteousness that has come through Christ, not through the law. And the goal of righteousness is life, and life more abundantly. So it reminds me again of Romans 8.11. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. That could well be a theme verse for this evening. Maybe continuing a little bit more in, in Romans, it says, verse 12, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh, for if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. After the flesh, it seems to mean after the um, dictates of the flesh which I think can be distinguished from our body. The flesh, I believe, is a fallen nature, a, a crippled priority system that, that we obtained um, through just being alive, being uh, in a biological sense, you could say. We, it was passed down to us. Sinful nature however you want to describe it. You could just say selfishness. You know, it pretty much sums it up. But you know, Satan did not create our bodies. He merely altered it. He blighted it. And thanks be to God, God saw something there that he thought was worth salvaging. Amen. Praise God. Um. We are partners with God in this. It becomes clear to me that as you study Scripture, God expects us to play a part. And I think it's spelled out there in verse 13, for if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye, here's our part, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. And I think sometimes we look at that and we think, well... We don't think about the importance of the spirit. We say, but if ye do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Well, that's not what it says. It says through the spirit. Through the spirit. Now, I think that's important to understand because it says the outcome will be we will live. Amen. I don't know how to explain it necessarily. Maybe to... Um, bring out other references that would teach the same thing, but um, if you have like verse 6 there, it says, to be carnally minded is death. Here's another formula. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. You know, carnally minded, you have one thing, death. Spiritually minded, you have two things, life, peace. I think you have multiple blessings. So, multiple blessings come when there's life and results from a spiritually minded and putting to death, mortifying through the spirit, the deeds of the body. There's a, um, I guess you could say there's a science to how this works, a spiritual science. And in Romans 6, Verses 10 and 11, a few references before that. It says, For 
In that he died, he died unto sin once, talking about Jesus. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. It seems like the thought there is, you know, he died once, he went through that experience. It was a, a temporary uh, event. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God, a continual unchanging um, work. And the reason I think verse 10 is important is because verse 11, it says, likewise. Likewise, in the same pattern, in the same way, um, it says, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead un indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's a reckoning process. What does it mean to reckon? I see it as, as making an evaluation based on what God says. Accepting it, maybe, according to what God has given to us. It is a faith-based work, this reckoning of ourselves alive unto God. God doesn't always call us to comprehend a thing but he does call us to believe it and to obey it. 1 John 4.17 says, As he is, so are we in this world. You know, it takes, for this to happen, it, it takes trust. It takes faith. And I think it's something we will never get done doing And while we're in this life. We apply ourselves to that daily. And we grow in that and mature. You know, there's a. I've been reading through First um, and Second Samuel. I might turn to a story in Second Samuel that's probably familiar to or um, fairly familiar. Chapter 24. And we know where David numbered the people, and this was toward the end of his life, and he made those mistakes in numbering the people. And as soon as he did it, as soon as he got the results, it said his his heart smote him and um, there again consequences and this this um, prophet Gad came to him and gave him three options in verse 13 came to David and told him and said unto him shall seven years of famine come unto thee in thy land or wilt thou flee three months before thine enemies while they pursue thee or that there be three days pestilence in the land, now advise and see what answer I shall return to him that sent me. You know, as we look at those three options and that whole scenario there with David, I can't help but think that maybe there's a lesson in this for us as well. And I see from David's answer he must have considered these three things. Basically, it was famine for seven years or war for three months or pestilence for three days. And his answer did not speak directly to which one. He said, I am in a great strait. Let us now fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. And let me not fall into the hand of man. Apparently, he interpreted, interpreted that God's hand of mercy um, would be more directly involved. You could say um, three days pestilence. He perceived that, you know, God's going to be directly involved or, or have to make that happen from his own hand. Whatever David saw, he thought that would be the best opportunity for God to afford his grace and his mercy on his behalf to override that judgment and intervene in some way. And in other words, I think, I think David said, I'm not going to put my trust in man, in my own abilities to fight a war or to cope with famine, but I'm going to to put my trust in God. I'm going to throw myself at the mercy of God's grace in this situation. 
and he saw that as the best response. Was, was David wrong in that? Well, verse 16 says, and the, when the angel stretched out his hand upon Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord repented him of the evil and said to the angel that destroyed the people, it is enough. Stay now thine hand. I think David was on to something. The Lord had mercy in that situation and I think David rightly perceived we don't know what the other option if he had made those other choices what it would have been but I believe it again it just brings out the heart of David when God told told us that here's a man that is after mine own heart this was the kind of thing that God was had in mind and there's very much a true sense that the life we live in the flesh we live only possible by the by the faith of the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. It is faith, it is trust that brings about the life of Christ in our experience. John chapter 11, 21 through 24. I think this is a fitting passage to bring out. Then Martha said unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. Jesus saith unto her, thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at that last day. You know, it seems like Jesus here was testing Martha a little bit. And, and maybe we're kind of this way. We have a theology. Lord, we know you can do these things. I know that he's going to rise in the last day. We have these articles of faith. We say that looks good. I can, I can sign my name there. We believe in the resurrection. Well, Jesus was getting a letter a little more than just a theology that is out there somewhere and that is a safe theology. But I think he was asking her and prodding her to accept that maybe there's really more to this life and to him, to his life-giving abilities than what you already know. In verse 40, I like this. Jesus saith unto her, Said I not unto thee that if thou wouldst believe, thou shouldst see the glory of God. That there really is what our pursuit should be in looking to God for life and for his power, the purpose of which should bring glory to God. As the glory of God is revealed, and in fact, I think that is an important aspect of our living for him. Because it seems that by seeing the glory of God and the, the life of God in our experience, that is what helps us grow. When we see evidence of that, it helps us advance our faith and, 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 and desire and in our ability to, to lay hold of those things eternal. I like a verse in John chapter 4, verse 10. It says, Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldst have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. I like the thought there that if thou knewest the gift, if thou realize who it is that's speaking to you, okay? We would be asking of God, Jesus says. We would be asking of Him because He is the source of that life and of that fountain of living water. Initially, Jesus came there and He, he requested a drink from her, but then, you know, He, he kind of turned this around and he said, if your eyes were opened, if you had the, the, 
true eyes of your understanding were enlightened, you would be asking of me. Dare I say that this well of water is available for us today in the form of the Holy Spirit. Verse 14 says, But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him, in him, a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The, the advantage of this is that we have our own well. We have an, our own internal source and power. It is in us. How handy is that? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Reflected in even our Christian day experience, the church experience. You know, that's Psalms 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters and so on. He does all these things. But then when it gets to verse 4, when it comes to the valley of the shadow of death, it's not he, it's thou. Thou art with me. He's right there. That is the message that we have. When we face that valley of the shadow of death, that is where we want the presence of God for sure and for certain and evident and confident in his presence, I should say. Other truths that I think pertain very strongly to the subject this evening is um, some verses from 1 Corinthians 15. So I'll just go over some of these quickly. For as in Adam all died, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection from the dead. The first Adam was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. As we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. I thought to write down some evidences of of resurrection life in our outward um, living and, and just some of those effects and examples of what that could be. Out of resurrection life can flow songs in the night, beauty for ashes, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, the oil of joy for those who mourn. Resurrection life can produce a, a multiplying effect of these things, a 30, 60, 100 fold and the blessings of God. Resurrection life will cause the deaf to hear, the blind to see, the lame to walk, the dumb to speak. Resurrection life will cause waters to break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Resurrection life will cause the parched ground to become a pool, and in thirsty land, springs of water, springs of water, Things that are attractive. Remember, Lot was attracted to that well-watered land. And I think there's certainly aspects of the Christian life that are attractive to the world. I know the, the teaching is that the world is um, our enemy and that it's going to hate us and all these things. But, you know, in the hour of trouble and in trial of individuals, who do they go to? I think resurrection life will produce in us what others will see as a source of goodness in their hour of need. An example of that is Paul and Silas. When they were in jail, um, there, there was that earthquake and, and all that commotion. Why did the jailer come to Paul and Silas for answers? I think resurrection life will help others to sense and to see their true and their deepest need for God. 
I thought of David confronting Saul. Remember, David had um, spared Saul's life, but then he took some evidence of that. And as Saul rose and was leaving, he said, hey, look here, I, I spared your life. And out of that, Saul became, you could say, a little bit apologetic. I'm not sure he repented. But he did acknowledge that God is with you. I have sinned. He saw his need. He was put on the spot. Resurrection life can find ordinary occasions to assert and to show itself. Resurrection life will cause others to worship. Example of Jesus as that resurrected Lord came, showed himself to the doubting Thomas. Thomas worshiped and said, my Lord, my God, when he saw the risen Lord. Resurrection life will enable you to do and to be the thing that is humanly impossible. Logically impossible. You know, I hope we all have some experiences that we can look back on and point to and say, without the Lord's help, we, we could not have brought so-and-so about or, or brought a thing to pass that God was able to do in our lives. It will make a way where there was no way. Resurrection life in our experience will say, as David, I have leaped over a wall. I have run through a troop. Resurrection will say to, to this mountain, be removed and cast into the depths of the sea. It will say, rise and be healed in the name of Jesus. It will say a lot of things that Jesus said. Jesus said, come and dine. We can say that to others, spiritually and maybe physically. Jesus said, cast your net on the other side. Maybe that's an illustration of others speaking into our lives, giving us advice or counsel um, from God, our fellow Christians. Cast your, you may, sometimes we get stuck in a rut and we just need somebody to tell us to do something simple, maybe a little different. But I think it's something that God can, can reveal to them and speak into our lives, into a situation or a problem. As I thought of the benefits of living the resurrected life, I thought too of the alternative. Psalm 115, verse 4. It says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes they have, but they see not. They have ears, they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. The gods of this world, the idols of this world, so often they're, they're just useless. So now let's look at Mark 6. Let's look at our Lord in light of what we just read. There's the story of the disciples <laughs> kind of in a bad spot out on the sea. It says in verse 7, 47, And when evening was come, the ship was in the midst of the sea, and he, Jesus, alone on the land, and he saw them, the disciples, toiling and rowing. Jesus saw them. He has eyes. He can see. For the wind was contrary unto them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he cometh unto them, walking upon the sea. He has feet. He can walk. And would have passed by them. But when they saw him walking upon the sea, they supposed it had been a spirit and cried out. Jesus has ears, he can hear. For they all saw him and were troubled. And immediately he talked with them. He has a mouth, he can speak. Our wondrous Lord, he tells them to be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And the account of that in Matthew, when it talks about Peter walked on the water and 
came to Jesus and began to sink. Jesus stuck out his hand. He has a hand. He can hold. He can handle. He's not like the idols of Psalms 115. Do we appreciate the life we have? Sometimes we look at people and how they neglect or abuse their life and we say, what a waste. Don't they understand the value of their life? Don't they know that what they have is of God, that it can pass away? What do they perceive? But, you know, in the same way, we, we like to take pretty good care of our physical bodies. And we take care of our life that way. But do we neglect the gift that is in us? 1 Timothy 4.14 says, Neglect not the gift that is in us. And it might be referring to a specific gift, but in a, in a general sense, you know, we all have the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift of life. Neglect it not. The presence of Jesus. Neglect Him not. Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me communion with the giver and the source of life he wants our fellowship he wants our friendship you don't usually eat with people that you don't like and he wants to nourish us first peter 1 3 says this blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I leave you with those thoughts this evening and may you find the life of Christ in your experience to be true and real and vibrant and desirable in all that he has desired for you to be according to his word.